The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud, where each week we choose some of our favourite pieces from the magazine and ask their writers to read them aloud. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and on the podcast this week, Svetlana Munetz takes us inside Ukraine's new plan for mass conscription. Paul Mason reads his diary on how Labour is right to ditch its 28 billion Green Pledge. Robbie Mallett tells us about life as a scientist working in Antarctica. And Lloyd Evans reads his life column. Up first, Svetlana Munetz. In the Second World War, the average age of a combat soldier was 26. In the Falklands, it was 23. For Ukrainian soldiers, it's 43. The war in Ukraine has been so far fought mostly by fathers, so their sons and daughters can rebuild the country when the fighting ends. But resisting Russia has cost so much and has continued for so long that the Ukrainian army is depleted. What to do next is a question that's not just divided the country, but its two foremost leaders, President Volodymyr Zelensky and Valery Zaluzhny, the head of the military. Ukraine's 600-mile front line is being defended by 880,000 soldiers, according to Zelensky. Most of them have had no rest from fighting since the start of the full-scale war two years ago. Zaluzhny, Ukraine's Iron General, who played a key role in repelling Russian attacks and reclaiming around half of the territory initially seized, wants to recruit up to half a million more men. Building up reserves will allow the military to replace those exhausted by fighting, injured and dead. Russia plans to conscript 400,000 more soldiers. Ukraine needs to respond to this challenge. Zelensky, however, has not only refused Zaluzhny's proposal but intends to remove the general from his post, saying a reboot of the Ukrainian government and military command is required. Zelensky's objection is partly on the basis that 500,000 new conscripts would come with a hefty price, at least 10 billion pounds for training, pay, clothing, food and equipment. That's about a quarter of Ukraine's government spending for this year and almost half the military budget. Western aid cannot be used to pay soldiers, and given Ukraine's deficit, Zelensky has said the recruitment drive is unaffordable. It takes six civilians paying taxes to provide for one soldier, he said recently, urging the six million Ukrainian refugees living abroad to return home and pay taxes to provide for those already fighting. While Zelensky's logic makes sense at the time of a wavering Western support, delaying mass conscription puts an even heavier strain on the existing forces. Last week, Russian forces in Donetsk Oblast entered the city of Avdiivka, which they have been trying to capture for a decade. They are now only a few hundred feet away from the main supply route for the Ukrainian defenders. The Russian breakthrough can only be prevented if Ukraine deploys infantry reserves with experience in fighting in urban areas. The fate of Kupyansk, a city in the Kharkiv region, also hangs in the balance. Russia is said to have assembled 40,000 troops, 500 tanks and more than 600 fighting vehicles for an assault. Just 20,000 Ukrainian troops will defend the city. 
The case for reinforcements is clear given Moscow's ambitions to seize the entire Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts and part of Kharkiv oblast up to the Oskil River, all in time for Putin's re-election next month. While Zelensky may not accede to Zaluzhny's demand for 500,000, he does agree that boosting conscription is inevitable. You either work or you fight, he said in his New Year speech. More Ukrainians will be called up, but how many and from which demographic is a subject of intense debate. Zelensky has shielded away from discussing it. Some opposition party figures have resorted to populist tactics, advocating for the conscription of MPs and oligarchs' children first. Others have proposed a more generous enlistment policy, doubling salaries for conscripts, for example, or giving them free flats when they are discharged. It's a fantasy, of course. The money doesn't exist. A 72-page draft conscription law was meant to have been passed last month, but the parliament was afraid to vote it through because of a public backlash. Last week, MPs were handed a new version of the bill with minimal changes, and there appears to be no option to avoid voting for it this month. Under the new law, the minimum conscription age will be lowered to 25 from 27. Summonses will be sent online and distributed in person. All new recruits will be trained for two to three months, while those aged 18 to 24 will be obliged to undergo five months of military training. The minimum salary is set at 20,000 hryvnias per month, about 420 pounds, a figure that can go up to over 100,000 hryvnias, more or less 2,500 pounds, depending on where soldiers are posted and at what level. The topic of mass mobilization has led to a rapid decline in public confidence across all government institutions, the parliament, the president's office and the defense ministry. No one wants to be the proponent of conscription and so a blame game has started in Kyiv. MPs from Zelensky's Servant of the People Party have been instructed to direct questions to the military, let the generals face the backlash. The president had been expected to host the press conference announcing the new mobilization rules and to field the difficult questions. In his place was Zaluzhny holding his first ever press conference. Zaluzhny, whose approval rating is far higher than Zelensky, said it was not his job to decide who was drafted. We are an army, he said. Our focus should be on fighting, not interfering in the lives of civilians. The politicians behind the policy were nowhere to be seen. The public sees the news from the front and knows that the choice is between conscription or Russian occupation, but that doesn't make it easier. The gap in Ukraine between those who are fighting and those who aren't is wider than ever. The soldiers can't understand why it should be only their war, and why the reinforcements that are desperately needed aren't arriving in greater numbers. Civilians were hoping the war could be fought without them, which partly explains their adulation of the soldiers. I have been on the front line for a year and already feel extremely exhausted, says Fadi Rudi, a soldier in the 72nd Brigade that is defending Vuhledar in Donetsk region. It's even more difficult for my brothers who have been here for two years. This reduces both fighting ability and morale. When there is no one to replace you, it becomes almost impossible to go and leave. Joining the army was seen as a one-way ticket. Those in uniform would stay until they were injured or dead. Fearing the draft, at least 25,000 fighting age men have fled Ukraine. More than 18,000 have been caught trying to cross the border. It's a vicious cycle.
The tougher it gets on the front line, the more civilians want to avoid it, so the worse the manpower shortages become. The new enlistment rules promise that soldiers who serve 36 months can go home and be immune from enlistment for two years. However, Zaluzhny has said it would be possible only if Ukraine prepared a sufficient number of trained reserves and there were no escalation on the battlefield. Enlisting soldiers would also be easier if people could see that the injured were well looked after, but this is not the case. One pool showed three-quarters of soldiers worry about being abandoned by the state if they were injured. They fear they will be unable to find a job in the future. To mobilize more people, you need to show that those who have done their duty live a post-army life with a clear conscience, benefits, opportunities, social security and respect, says Sergeant Boris Khmilevsky, an instructor in tactical medicine. Those who dodge the draft can expect harsh penalties, such as losing the right to travel outside Ukraine or drive a vehicle, the confiscation of assets and even imprisonment. Some military men are talking about the need for further tough mobilization tactics. Anatoly Stuzhenko, commander of the 118th Brigade, went so far as to suggest that those who avoid service should be shot in the knee and need to know that they will round it up by Russians if the war is lost. If we fall, all these couch potatoes will be swept into a pile. His words reflect the desperation soldiers feel while Ukrainian politicians fret about the unpopular draft law. In what will probably be his last essay as the army chief, Zaluzhny wrote that it was time to accept that Western sanctions against Russia have failed. Moscow's ability to mobilize human resources, he said, contrasts with the inability of state institutions in Ukraine to improve the manpower levels of our armed forces without the use of unpopular measures. Ukraine's only means of gaining an advantage over Russia is to change the rules of the war by using technology and drones to master the entire arsenal of relatively cheap, modern and extremely effective assets that are rapidly developing. He thinks this must be a homegrown industry, mindful that allies resolve my weekend and supplies might dry up. Zelensky may not have appreciated being given this advice a public, but it was a salutary reminder for him. As commander-in-chief, he will bear the responsibility of how this war ends, while General Zaluzhny will be regarded as a national hero for the rest of his life. The president's legacy will be determined by what is left of Ukraine. That was Svetlana Monyets. Next, Paul Mason. My family despises war movies, so it's way after Christmas that I get to see Ridley Scott's dire Napoleon film. The most embarrassing scene is where Josephine lifts up her dress and tells Bonaparte, if you look down, you will see a surprise, and once you see it, you will always want it. It strikes me that something similar is going on between Reform UK and the Conservative Party, with the result being long-term electoral irrelevance for the latter. When I think of conservative values, the words chivalry, monarchy and the church come to mind. In Penny Mordant, the Tories have a politician who has wielded an actual sword in an actual church in the presence of the actual king. Unsurprisingly, a poll for more in common finds she is the only major conservative figure with a positive net approval rating and is worshipped by 2019 Tory voters. But a source from the National Conservative wing of the party retorts, She's a Liberal and might as well join the Liberal Democrats. I've seen this happen before to Labour in 2019, when ideologically driven factionalism occluded all sense of proportion, and I can tell you 
it ends badly. The moment approaches when Labour has to abandon its $28 billion a year climate spending commitment. I cheered when it was announced because it was a symbolic commitment to young and green-inclined voters, but I will cheer the decision to let it go. I only understood the problem when I studied the Office for Budget Responsibilities 2023 Fiscal Risk Assessment. It's not just that the cost of borrowing is now four times higher than when Rachel Reeves made the pledge, it's that Ukraine has worsened the debt dynamics out to 2050 and nobody, including government, wants to admit how badly. The case for borrowing to invest in green energy rests on the government's own figures. We will have a smaller debt pile if we go early than if we go late. But the OBR's report cites a French study suggesting that the debt effect of decarbonising household energy could be five times bigger than the UK estimates. With uncertainties of that order, Labour is right to state its overall intent and leave the precise costings to the manifesto. The Defence Select Committee issues a report that reads like the epitaph for a decade of austerity. The UK is strategically unready for war. Its armed forces have huge capability gaps and nobody has thought what we might do if tomorrow we had to start building tanks, making rifles and recruiting personnel at a crisis level intensity. One glance at the history books shows we are making the same mistakes as in the mid-1930s. Then, as now, admirals had to be persuaded to consider defending Europe, not the Far East, as their priority. Then, as now, generals quibbled over theories of mechanisation, while the task of recruiting an expeditionary army hit delay after delay. Then, as now, the public was largely clueless about the threat and regarded conscription as unthinkable. We need to rearm Britain to face down Russian aggression, both physically and morally. I'd like Labour in power to pursue this as a cross-party effort. But the Conservative right seems obsessed with waging a different war against the beliefs of the progressive half of Britain. As I write, Liz Truss is launching the popular Conservatives. For years, she says, the Conservatives have failed to take on the left-wing extremists, George Osborne once denounced me from the dispatch box as a revolutionary Marxist while I was working at Channel 4 News, so I find this assertion strange. Truss explains she does not mean socialists, but environmentalists, those who say they are in favour of helping people across all communities and supporting LGBT people or groups of ethnic minorities. And yes, these are direct quotes from Liz Truss. I don't go to church often, but in my part of London, all this sounds remarkably like the routine agenda of the Church of England. As for pandering to the anti-capitalists, I'm not sure Trust realises that half of all funds under management in the world are soon set to be governed by environmental, social and corporate governance principles, ESG. It feels like the Tory right is getting set for a long march through the institutions, retaking the National Trust from woke pensioners and the RNLI from its surf-tussled Gen Z volunteers. I suspect the effort will produce something akin to Charles Minard's infographic of Bonaparte's 1812 campaign, only with thinner lines and plenty of argy-bargy among the stragglers. That was Paul Mason. Now, Robbie Matlett. Do you like to dig? That's the first question seasoned Antarcticans ask when a scientist tells them he'll spend winter on the white continent. 
Digging snow away from doors, windows, and shipping containers saps your energy, but they're not asking about that. Digging is a symbol for all of the unglamorous physical tasks that will come to define your life. If you like to dig, then you probably also like to wash, to sweep, to whittle and sand, to carry rather than drag, to find the right tool for the job, to fight a losing battle against the weather. Our drinking water is made from desalinated seawater. An impressive machine that smells like a swimming pool makes perfectly soft water with no taste. We use its bounty sparingly and bubble carbon dioxide through the water to hit the appropriate pH balance. Unfortunately, we're running out of carbon dioxide and the water is becoming increasingly alkaline. They tell us we're safe and that we'll see damage to the pipes well before the enamel begins to flake from our teeth. We watch the pipes and brush with high fluoride toothpaste. As a climate scientist, I never thought I would be this exposed to a shortage of carbon dioxide. Skidoos replaced dog sleds in the late 1990s. The biggest beneficiaries of the change are the seals, which are no longer hacked into dog food. But as I scream expletives through a blizzard at my skidoo, yanking its starter cord in vain for the tenth time, I wonder if anything really has changed. I still have to contend with a loud, smelly, temperamental steed, which could seriously hurt me if I push things too far. Fighting apoplexy, I call the station's garage on the radio for help. Why is everything in Antarctica so difficult and crap? It turns out I've inadvertently left the kill switch on. We finally used our last egg. Since the last resupply half a year ago, we've been diligently turning our eggs over twice per day, resuspending their yolks so they don't settle on the shell and rot. Six months and thousands of eggs later, I watched the last shell break and release its suspiciously viscous payload into a mixing bowl. Months ago, we accidentally broke the top layer of each box, a hundred eggs wasted in a heartbeat. We laughed at the time, but now each one seems precious. From here on, cakes will be made with tofu. Our station sits next to a large bay, which freezes over as winter sets in. Until then, it's warm enough for humpback whales to visit us. The weather is calm, the sky is clear, and the full moon lights up the glacial walls of the bay like a football stadium, the drifting icebergs like players. One night, I fell asleep with the window cracked open, listening to the humpbacks call to each other through the still air. I woke up thinking that I'd never heard anything so beautiful. We are truly isolated here, but rarely alone. The same 25 people greet me at every lunchtime and at every dinner time. At times it feels impossible to look at those increasingly weathered faces, and all I want to do is hide in bed. I'm beginning to get up earlier and earlier, savouring my alone time in front of the harsh LED lamp that keeps seasonal affective disorder at bay. I can't wait to see the sun. Midwinter's day is a big deal in Antarctica. It marks the halfway point after which the sun will eventually return. We dress up for a feast of dried, canned and frozen food. A team photo is taken and sent to the teams at the other Antarctic stations. We exchange gifts, handcrafted over weeks and months, with the wood, metal and various detritus to hand. In the evening, we crowd into an attic to watch John Carpenter's The Thing projected on a wall. The sea has frozen over so solidly that we can now walk on it allowing us to gather the data that lured us here. At first we go out on skis, 
spreading our weight carefully and shuffling across the eight-inch skin of floating ice. We wear immersion suits in case we fall through and carry throw ropes for rescue. We also take a harpoon of sorts, which we occasionally smash into the ice in front of us. The Inuit have a handy rule. Ice that can withstand a single firm strike is fit to walk on. Two strikes indicates it's fit to skidoo on. We are more cautious. When our science requires it, we bore holes and extract ice cores. Our steel drill rips through the soft, salty ice, revealing the humbling fragility of what holds us up. A bright red plane appears in the sky like a hideous albatross. It lands on our runway, freshly cleared of snow. I'm going home. The sun shines through the thin, ozone-depleted atmosphere as I climb into the plane. I'm greeted by two pilots, preposterously tanned and energetic, compared with us on station. We take off, flying low over the dazzling ice and dark grey ocean, turning north. I'm headed to a new job and another polar winter at the other end of the planet, this time in Arctic Norway. Once again, I'll not see the sun for weeks as I endure my second back-to-back polar night. I am still not sure if I like to dig. That was Robbie Mallet. And finally, Lloyd Evans. The old man next door asked me to collect his parcel from the food bank. Sure, I said. I joined a queue of 20 starvelings outside a chapel in the East End. Most were migrants carrying rucksacks or bags for life, and there were a few cockney mums with fidgety nippers in tow. Everyone in the queue had a mobile phone, which is normal these days and most were dressed for the Olympic Games in Adidas sprint shoes, Nike jogging pants and Reebok breathable weightlifting shirts. I felt distinctly underdressed in my Oxfam cast-offs. Despite their keep-fit attire, many of the applicants seemed to be on the corpulent side, and one or two had stepped proudly out of the closet and were openly obese. Good for them. After waiting in a gale for 25 minutes, I was ushered into a brightly lit Anglican chapel, which had been systematically stripped of any reference to Christ, the cross, the commandments, and so on. Nailed to the walls were abstract posters bearing mottos for zombies. We are all one, or my spirit shall bring you life. I filled in a form and took a seat opposite an elderly adjudicator whose wrinkled face was hidden by a surgical mask. Is English your first language? she asked. I told her that I was collecting food for an elderly neighbour, and she queried the reason I'd given on the form. I wrote debt, as it sounded better than grinding poverty or starvation. She said, let's put rent arrears as it's more simpatico. OK, I said, but why? She misheard me. Simpatico, she explained. It's Italian. She showed me the options on a laminated sheet with the words and symbols printed adjacently, as pub signs are, to help the illiterate. Shampoo and loo roll were offered, along with sanitary towels, moisturiser and other women's toiletries. I could have got some pet food too. The mood among the staff was gushingly and exhaustingly friendly. Mia, what a beautiful name, yelped a volunteer from a nearby table where a Ukrainian refugee was being processed. On the other side of me, a Sri Lankan male handed his passport to a volunteer who noticed that he'd recently turned 30. Congratulations for last week, she beamed. The birthday boy didn't appear to understand her, even though he claimed to be studying engineering at a London university. To complete his paperwork, she asked him how he'd travelled to the food bank, on foot or by public transport. He frowned uncertainly and said yes. 
When she'd finished transferring his answers to the computer, she handed him the form with a dismissive gesture. That's yours. Take it with you, she said. Throw it in the bin. Do whatever you like with it. She minded ripping it up, as if to assure him that the food bank wasn't a front for the secret police. The terms of trade were tougher than you might imagine, and the system is designed to thwart scroungers. You can collect a three-day supply of food, but you can't return for at least a month. So the notion that anyone in Britain is reliant on food banks must be a myth. The banks themselves prevent dependency. I joined a third queue at a delivery point across the road and collected my free goodie bag. It looked like the contents of a dead bachelor's pantry. Packets of powdered soup and butterscotch mousse. A pound of caster sugar. Plastic pouches filled with rice and lentils. A can of Del Monte quality halved pears in light syrup, which looked quite tasty in the picture. For energy, I was given a kilo of wheat biscuits from Morrison's, which a performing elephant might enjoy. The fresh veg was limited to a bag of fist-sized yams. Finally, for pudding, I got a family pack of four Mars bars. In Tesco, my haul would have set me back about £18, which is the sum you'd earn working on the minimum wage for 90 minutes and that's how much time I spent in the queue. Financially, it was the same as having a crap job for an hour and a half. When I got back, the old guy was at home with his son and daughter, and he asked me to call again later. Perhaps he was embarrassed to admit that we were on speaking terms. Fair enough. Or maybe he wanted to conceal his straightened circumstances from his family. Anyway, I felt a little stung by his rebuff, so I wolfed all his Mars bars and ate his Del Monte halved pears in light syrup. Then I simmered his yams for ten minutes, but they dissolved into a puddle of reddish phlegm. So I flung them into the garden for the foxes to fight over. No takers. Even vermin are too sniffy for my cooking. And that's everything for this week. But if you enjoyed those articles, why not pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read everything in full. I'm Oscar Edmondson, and I hope you join us again next week. (laughs) 